Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our brand new Easter series called Easter, Its Purpose and Promise today with a message called Sacrifice, the Need for Spilled Blood. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 9.22 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It is one of those questions that really needs to be answered and answered well. If the question is not answered, I fear there is no reason for the Christian faith, none at all. But if the question is answered well, we should see that we can't exist without the cross. Question is this, if it is true that we're all guilty of violating God's infinite law, why then can't God simply be gracious, forgive our sins, heal our wayward hearts? I mean, why can't he find a way to overlook our transgressions? Why do we need a bloody cross? I have a memory that still haunts me. Now, I showed my two daughters a movie that depicted the crucifixion of Jesus, and seeing it depicted utterly upset my youngest daughter. Turns out I'd used bad judgment, and I had shown her that crucifixion scene when I fear she was too young. And I remember that she was crying, and with a voice of anguish, she asked, why would anyone do that to Jesus? I told her it was done by evil men, but I also told her that this is the evil that's in all of our hearts. And then I also told her that God the Father could have rescued Jesus, but instead it pleased the Father to crush the Son. Now, I can almost hear the response out there. You know, in recent years, there have been those who have argued that this view of things is tantamount to cosmic child abuse. No father could ever be forgiven for treating his son in that kind of a way. And so many of us in our day argue for a kinder and gentler God, a God not given to such acts of savagery. But a true reading of the Bible finds it to be a book of amazing love and grace, but also a book that is drenched in the blood of sacrifice. Indeed, if you will allow me to get off track for just a bit, I also notice that this is a part of all of life. Carnivorous animals kill in order to live, and even herbivores must eat plants, and so death does happen on a microbial level. Death is required for there to be life. Very early on in the human story, we find both Cain and Abel making an offering to God long before we have a clear command to do so. Ancient civilizations all made offerings to the gods. This, it seems, is an impulse as old as the human story. But when we come to the third book of the Bible, which is the book of Leviticus, we find that the story of offering and the blood of animals is graphically displayed. It was W.A. Criswell who said, Leviticus is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. Without an understanding of the principles of atonement and holiness found in Leviticus, Much of the New Testament has no foundation on which to rest. He then goes on to say Leviticus is one of the most New Testament books of the Old Testament would hardly be an exaggeration, for it foreshadows the person and work of Christ in a most remarkable and elucidating manner. And Criswell is not the only one to have said this. J. Sidlow Baxter wrote, Leviticus is referred to over 40 times in the New Testament. All that follows it in the scripture is colored by it, and therefore, a clear knowledge of this book contributes greatly towards comprehending the message of the Bible as a whole. You know, for those of you who have attempted to read Leviticus, those words might sound shocking. I mean, after all, just the first seven chapters seem off-putting to a great many people. 
You know, for those seven chapters, we have the law of God for burnt offerings, then grain offerings, then peace offerings, then sin offerings, and finally guilt offerings. And in each case, all the aspects of each offering are given in precise detail. You know, for instance, in the case of a burnt offering, well, the priest is told to kill a bull and then to throw its blood on the sides of the altar of sacrifice and then cut up the animal and wash the entrails and the legs, then burn its pieces on the altar and then take the ashes from the altar, then having the priest change his clothing, then taking the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. You see, with each offering, the details make the average reader's eyes just seem to glaze over. I've heard more than one Christian say, I mean, I just don't get it. Why is it important to have all that stuff in the Bible? And why is it so important to read all that stuff? But if one stops and learns to reflect on this book, a clear set of themes begins to develop. And with each of these themes, it becomes clear that the book of Leviticus is all about worship. It's about approaching God and it's about the problem of human sin and distinguishing between what is clean and what is unclean. Leviticus, the name of the book as it appears in our English Bible, is taken from the Latin, and the book tells us about the priests who were from the Hebrew tribe of Levi and what the priests were to do as they led the people of God in worship. See, Leviticus teaches us a number of important lessons that simply must not be overlooked. The first and perhaps most prominent lesson is that when we come before God in worship, we're not permitted to come to him on our terms. Rather, we are to come to him on his terms. Indeed, the only historical narrative in this book is, is a tragedy. Two sons of Aaron, the high priest, offer up unauthorized fire before the Lord. And Leviticus 10 verse 2 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then in the very next verse, Moses speaks for God. This is what the Lord said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. That's to say, the priests who offer up sacrifices are to regard me as holy, and therefore, they are not to deviate even in one small area from the commands that I have given regarding worship. I, the God of Israel, who am holy, will determine how I am to be approached. And in consequence, the rest of Israel will realize the glory of God. Now, this reality that, that God is approached on his terms and not on ours should lead us to fear him. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament warns us that our God is a consuming fire. And given this reality, it should strike us that the laissez-faire attitude that so many of us have regarding both faith and worship is altogether unbiblical. But what else does the book of Leviticus teach us? You know, in the previous book, the book of Exodus, Israel is told to build a house of worship. It's called a tabernacle. And the tabernacle consisted of three different sections. When the priest entered through the initial curtain or the outer veil, he would then be in an open enclosure. And within that enclosure, there were two separate articles dedicated to worship. The first was the altar and the second was the laver. The laver was used for washing and the altar was used for burning sacrifices, the ones one reads about in Leviticus. Now, each day, and this is key, every single day, once in the morning and once at twilight, lambs a year old were offered. And furthermore, every single offering was burned up on the altar and was to be the very best of the animals. Every animal to be sacrificed was to be free from any defect, would never be able to have a broken bone or any imperfection. 
And the important part here is that sacrifice was to be costly. You don't offer God second best or hand-me-downs or what's left over. I mean, that would be an outrage against the greatness and the holiness of God. But let's get back to the tabernacle. I have described the outer court where daily sacrifices were offered in a manner that was prescribed by God. And at the back end of the outer court stood a tent, a tent that was divided into two sections, first the holy place and then further in at the back of the tent, the holy of holies or the most holy place. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place. On one wall was a golden lampstand, and then on the opposite wall was the table of the bread of the presence. And then right in front of the curtain that enters into the Holy of Holies stood the altar of incense. And the priest was to enter this place daily. He was to offer up incense and also daily was to change the bread on the table, making sure that the light kept burning and that the bread was fresh. The Holy of Holies contained only one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant, and it symbolized the very presence of God. Now, Leviticus 16 tells us that there was only one day of the year in which the high priest alone could enter the Holy of Holies. At no other time could anyone enter. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to the outer court where daily offerings and sacrifices were being performed. You know, those offerings were called an atonement. And the Hebrew word for atonement meant to ransom by means of a substitute. And that is, it's a payment that has to be made to appease God. The people had sinned, and furthermore, the people were unclean. How could unclean people approach God in worship? And the answer is, sacrifice was required. And when the New Testament book of Hebrews examines these sacrifices in some detail, Hebrews 9 verse 22 concludes with these words, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Boy, that's an important line. But why would God require blood to be shed? And this is the central question that makes up the story of Easter. Beginning Monday, April 15th, Dr. Neufeld will present his new two-week Easter series entitled, Easter, Its Purpose and Promise. This series focuses on the details of Jesus' weeks leading up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself, and the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice and atonement. The second week examines the resurrection, his glorification, and his ultimate victory over sin and death so that all of God's people might receive forgiveness and the promise of eternity. Join us for Easter, its purpose and promise beginning Monday, April 15th through Friday, April 26th. And remember, throughout April, you can still request Dr. Neufeld's recent series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus, and a bonus copy of the Gospel of John as our free Easter gift to you. To request your free ministry gift or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Leviticus 16 describes in some detail one of the most important days of the calendar for any ancient Hebrew. It was the Day of Atonement. It was the day 
that was accompanied by prayer and fasting, or as the Bible says, with afflicting oneself. It was sober and it was extensive for the whole community. It goes far beyond what I can describe here. But let me give you a highly abridged version of what happened on that day. The first thing that happened on that day was that the high priest needed to make atonement for himself for for how could he, an impure man, stand before a holy God? Sacrifice needed to be made. Then the high priest would take two goats and cast lots over them. One goat would be slaughtered in sacrifice and the other would become what the Hebrew describes as Azazel. It was not to be slaughtered, rather it was to be presented alive before the Lord. And I'm going to come back to that part in a bit. Then on that day, after slaughtering a bull on the altar, making atonement for himself, the high priest was then to take the blood of the bull offering and put it in a bowl. And then on that one day of the year, he would go from the outer court through the holy place and go behind the veil and enter the Holy of Holies. The incense altar was to have been burning and the cloud of incense would cover the Ark of the Covenant as the priest entered. He would approach the ark and sprinkle some of the blood of the bull seven times on what was called the mercy seat, the place on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, as I've said, this is a condensed version, and here I only want to give us an idea of what happened. But after offering atonement for the people, the high priest would come back to that live goat. And remember, it's called an Azazel. And the high priest would then lay his hands on the head of that goat, and then he would confess the sins of God's people for the whole year. And then the goat would be taken into the wilderness, never to be returned again. Indeed, that goat was considered cursed because it bore the curse for sin on its head. But God was saying that he had found a way in the infinite mercy of God to send the sins of his people away from the camp, never to be brought to mind again. It's really a beautiful picture. And so what does all that teach us? Well, first, that sin is an issue. And second, God does not, nor will he ever, overlook sin. He doesn't simply wave his hand and say it doesn't matter. An unholy God might do that, but not the one true God. Clearly, a way must be found to ransom the lives of sinners to make atonement for their sins. But how in the world can a daily and then a yearly ceremony of sacrificing animals for guilt and sin possibly satisfy a righteous God? Are we actually to believe that sacrificing lambs and goats and bulls in a prescribed manner would satisfy the sin problem? Well, the answer is no. The New Testament book of Hebrews presents us with an analysis of all this pattern of worship. I'm now reading Hebrews 10, verses 1 to to 4. Let's listen. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There it is. All those sacrifices reminded Israel that the sin problem is never dealt with through happy thoughts or well-wishing or thinking that sin doesn't matter. That's why we need a book of Leviticus. It reminds us constantly, daily and yearly, that sin is an offense to a holy God. And yet this holy God invites his people to draw near. Now, how can those two incongruent realities 
be possible. All of this is required to understand the necessity of Easter, the necessity of a Savior, Jesus, who is nailed to a cruel cross. Let's take it one step at a time. We're starting with John 1.14. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John's speaking of the birth of Jesus, something we celebrate at Christmas time. But when he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the actual Greek uses the word that comes from the language of Exodus and Leviticus. It says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He means to say that the body of Jesus is the tabernacle of God, a tabernacle that invites us to come and worship, and yet a tabernacle that reminds us that we are unclean, and we can't worship God on our own terms. We must come to him on his terms, and in some fashion, this tabernacle of God, Jesus, must provide a way into the presence of the Father. So let's fast forward now. Jesus is an adult and ready to enter into his public ministry. John the Baptist has been drawing a large crowd, and he's calling people to repent of their sins. And then in John 1, verse 29, we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There it is. Jesus is not just the tabernacle of God. He's also the sacrifice offered up to God for our sins He is the Lamb of God. He is both the Passover Lamb and the bull that was sacrificed, whose blood was splashed against the sides of the mercy seat in the most holy place. But let's move forward one more time to Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51, which speaks of the actual moment of Christ's death. The passage says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that curtain is the curtain that led into the Holy of Holies. So remember, this is the place where only the high priest could enter. But also remember that on that day, what the high priest could do was only two things. He could remind the people of just how serious sin was, making it impossible to approach God. But he could also lay before the people the hope that atonement needed to be made. But he knew that the slaughter of bulls and goats would not and could not take away sin. When Jesus died on the cross, at the very moment that his sacrificial offering was complete, God the Father reached out his hand and tore the veil from the Holy of Holies. You don't need an annual day of atonement anymore. This sacrifice is the atonement that all the other sacrifices were looking forward to. Listen to Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and that's it. Now that Jesus became our sacrifice, a true atonement, a a payment for our ransom has been made to God, and so the place of worship where we might be accepted has been opened up. How important it is to hear this. That's why Hebrews 10 verse 22 says, let us draw near. And that's why Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. Were it not for the atonement of Jesus, we would have been struck down, killed like Nadab and Abihu. And hear the words of God saying, I will be regarded as holy. But that's why Christians say that Christ is the only way to God. We believe that it is God, not human sensibilities, that determines how and if God can be approached. 
Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. But there's one more important issue that needs to be seen. We've seen how Jesus is the tabernacle, the place of worship. We've seen how Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. But did you also know that Jesus is our great high priest? That's what Hebrews 10 verses 21 to 22 says. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, only Jesus himself can take you into the Holy of Holies, for he is the ritual of the tabernacle that cleanses from moral impurities. He is the tabernacle, the way to the presence of God. He is the sacrifice whose life is a ransom for our sins, and he is the great high priest who guides us into the very throne room of God so that we can find confidence to worship and to bring our requests and to be accepted as a son or a daughter of God. That's why Christians have never called the Friday on which Christ our Savior died Dark Friday. No, not Dark Friday. Good Friday. And even calling it that is a profound understatement. It is as good a day as this sin-soaked and tired earth has ever seen. Jesus Christ on the cross is the most precious thing, the, the lovely thing that any believer has ever seen. This is the gateway into glory. This is the seat of our worship. This is atonement. This is ransom. This is a good and acceptable sacrifice. His blood was spilled and we are made clean. John, I think this is a difficult question, particularly in this day and age where, you know, we sort of revolt against the idea of shed blood. And yet here it is. Why does it have to be this? Yes, uh, this is, let's, let's review that again. It's so important. The wages of sin is death. Um, we die because of our sins. Uh, God's righteousness demands that blood be shed because it is the shedding of blood that is the draining out of life. And as life is drained out, the sin is atoned for. That is, um, if we were to die in our sins, uh, then indeed um, our, our own eternal death is our eternal payment before the Father for our sins. Yet Christ's sacrifice takes care of all of that. That's the good news of the gospel. So we want to continue to say we need to go to the place of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Easter series. Easter, it's purpose and promise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In the past month, we've been blessed with the opportunity to place the daily Bible teaching program of Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again on radio stations across Northern Canada. What a wonderful opportunity to touch so many Northern communities with trustworthy Bible teaching and messages of encouragement and hope. This month, we're inviting you to join us in launching this exciting venture and sustaining the airing of these programs moving forward. So for that purpose, perhaps you'd consider sending a one-time gift or consider becoming a monthly partner as an indication of your commitment to sustain Bible teaching programming across Canada. To offer your gift of support, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. 
And remember to ask for this month's free ministry gift, Dr. John's new series on the Gospel of John, Why Follow Jesus.